going to take. Uh, we looked at it uh, historically. We determined, we asked who the author of the Pentateuch was. I said, well, we should probably identify that person with the uh, figure in the Pentateuch known as Moses, as long as we recognize that a little bit later somebody uh, came behind Moses and tried to, or uh, updated uh, some things in there, included the story about Moses' death, and we might have done a couple other little things in there. Um, and so I called that the Pentateuch 2.0, and that's actually what we, when we open our Bibles, that's actually what, we, uh, what we're reading. We're reading this kind of updated version of what, of what Moses did. And as far as we can tell, it looks like this later guy who updated this, whoever he was, uh, essentially just tried to follow along with what Moses was wanting to do uh, in the Pentateuch. So we asked uh, when the Pentateuch, uh, we asked who the Pentateuch was written to, and the obvious answer is the nation of Israel. Um, and we asked when the Pentateuch was written, uh, and um, what we kind of, what I kind of argued for was we think the Pentateuch was probably written uh, a little bit after the people of Israel came into the Promised Land. Um, so, and that's significant for two reasons. First of all, because as almost as soon as the people enter into the Promised Land. Uh, things start to go bad, right? They've forgotten their covenant with the with uh, God, and they start being disobedient to uh, what God has called them to be as a covenant people. And we also learn that uh, whoever the author of the Pentateuch was, uh, as he's looking back over the history of his people, he's recognizing, okay, we we had this law and this covenant and that was based on the law that we made with God, but unfortunately, that law doesn't seem to have made its way into the people's hearts, as in that, that law didn't have the effect that we might have thought that it was. We, might, we often think of laws having this constraining influence on people's behavior, but what actually seems to happen is that the function of the law actually shows us uh, all the different ways that the people were sinful, and so it actually uh, almost has an opposite effect. It actually ends up highlighting sin. So. Um, we did that, uh, started that two weeks ago, and then also two weeks ago we began to consider the theological themes of the Pentateuch, and we considered, well, what was the, um, the uh, original purpose that God had in his creation, and I argued for the original purpose of God's creation being uh, God's glorious image being spread throughout the entire earth through God's glorious image bearers, which is us, right? Uh, last week, uh, we continued studying that theme of God's original and purpose for the Pentateuch, and we moved on to uh, another theme that uh, occurs really soon after we read about God's creation, which is the theme of human rebellion, right? And so um, we uh, looked at Genesis 3, and we saw that human sin or human rebellion ultimately starts when humanity starts trying to decide what is good, what is acceptable on our own, rather than listening to what God uh, has described as good and acceptable. We start to try and take on that role and responsibility uh, for ourselves. Well, another thing we saw in Genesis 3 is that when we do that, we begin to deny the goodness of God, right? We call things good that God has chosen to keep us away from, and so that leads us to questioning the, uh, the goodness of God. We also learned in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, we as human beings just have this innate sense to want to justify ourselves once we realize that we've committed sin, right? Uh, you remember Adam and Eve, uh, their first response when God asked them, where are you? What have you done? God says, it, or Adam says, it, it wasn't me, God. It, it was the woman. And the woman says, well, it, it wasn't me, God. It, it was the serpent. He deceived me, right? 
And so humanity just seems to have this natural sense to want to try and justify ourselves and uh, to shift the blame. We also learned that um, Adam and Eve, the first thing they did after they realized that they uh, sinned, they realized that they were what? That they were naked, right? And they were ashamed of themselves, right? And so their first move was to try and find coverings to cover up their shame, right? And what I suggested was this is really just an attempt to try and justify themselves, right? And we see one of the last things in Genesis 3 is God looks at this pathetic attempt of Adam and Eve to try and justify themselves and says, that's not going to cut it, right? And so he rips these fig leaves off that uh, they've made to attempt to cover themselves, and he replaces them with animal skins and says, this is how you're going to be, this is how you're going to cover yourself. So we moved on then to Genesis chapter 4, and we realized that uh, although we might have maybe held on to a shred of hope after Genesis 3. Once we get to Genesis 4, we realize that that shred of hope is totally obliterated. We see that sin has invaded creation far more than we ever would have, uh, uh, that w- than we ever would have thought perhaps would have been the case. We also see something else interesting. We also see that humanity is starting to think of sin as not that big a deal, right? I mean, Cain murders his brother and thinks that God is too harsh on him when God uh, sends him out of his presence, right? Um, we also see some of Cain's later descendants bragging about sin. We also see this carried on through uh, figures like Noah. Noah's son uh, comes, in, as far as we can tell, he comes into Noah after the flood and to his tent and sees his drunk father uh, laying there naked and apparently wants to go tell his brothers. Well, he thinks it's he thinks sin is funny, right? And so his brothers show a little bit more modesty and cover their father. But ultimately what we see in Noah, one of Noah's sons is that he, he thinks sin's maybe something to laugh at rather than something to be taken seriously. So um, we're not heading in a good direction the farther we go into Genesis 4. But tonight I want to, this is going to be our last session on the Pentateuch, um, Pentateuch Part 3. And we're going to cover three more theological themes that I think are very important as we begin to move through our Bible. Um, one thing I just want to keep, uh, keep reminding you as we go through this course is that uh, just what the goal and the purpose of the course is. So my, my goal and the things that I, and the topics that I'm going to discuss and the things that we're going to be covering in here, my goal is to kind of give you the tools necessary to help you as you go to read your Bibles, uh, go to read your Old Testaments in your daily quiet times, and uh, perhaps if any of you are ever in a position to teach a class, just to give you some tools necessary to begin to think, okay, how do how can I study this material and try and understand what this original author was trying to tell us uh, about God and about our role uh, in God's creation? So just keep that in mind as we're, as we're going through these, uh, through these theological themes. Uh, as we go through the patriarchal promises, the covenant, and the royal anticipation uh, that are within the Pentateuch, I've chosen these three, uh, these three te- themes and the two previous themes because I think they're important as we're reading through the Pentateuch, these themes show up way more often than the number of times that we're going to be able to cover uh, here tonight. So just keep that in mind. Uh, we're looking to get the tools necessary uh, to be able to study the Bible well. So uh, the first thing that we're going to look at tonight is the patriarch- patriarchal promises. So first thing we need to cover is, well, what, what is a patriarch and why, what are the promises made to him, right? So a patriarch's just simply a, a, an older person that's a, an ancestor of a certain people. So in the Bible, we generally refer to the figures of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the patriarchs to the nation of Israel. And what we see uh, very early on in Genesis, uh, essentially we have the 
what we call the primeval history in Genesis 1 through 11, and then at the very end of Genesis 11, we're introduced to a figure named Abraham. And we see God calling Abraham uh, away from his father's household and making some promises to him. We're going to read those promises now. So Genesis 12, verses uh, 1 through 3 say, Now the Lord said to Abram, so uh, eventually God changes uh, Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. That's why the difference there. But now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who dishonors you, or I'm sorry, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as we're reading through Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, I think there's essentially three aspects, uh, three promises, if you will, that, uh, that we see in this verse. Uh, first one is uh, uh, what I'm choosing to call posterity. Basically, God is promising that a large nation is going to come from Abraham, right? And this is very significant. Why? Because Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are currently barren when we're reading about them in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. They don't have any children, and the the Bible uh, kind of gives us the impression that they're uh, way beyond the age where they should anticipate having children. And so this uh, very first one, posterity, the, the idea that there's going to be a, a nation and a future for Abraham even after his death is uh, automatically, we see that's very significant for Abraham. Another uh, promise that we see uh, in these verses is uh, something I'm going to call relationship. So we can get this when we see just all the different times that uh, the word blessing is used in this passage. So God is all about blessing Abraham and his descendants, right? I think the word blessing occurs in this passage five times. And so what that indicates to us is that uh, God is promising that he is going to have a relationship with Abraham and his offspring, right? There's going to be a, a special relationship between them, uh, between God and the patriarchs and their descendants that uh, categorize them specifically and not so much uh, the rest of humanity. God is beginning to narrow his focus from the broad focus that we see in Genesis 1 through 11. He's beginning to take a narrow focus on this one family, and we're learning about God's special relationship with this one family. And the last, uh, last promise that we see, um, we see it more or less hinted at in these verses, um, is just the promise of land. So um, we see uh, the land promise um, is hinted at in here. God comes to him in his uh, father's house um, and tells Abraham, I want you to go from this house and go to the land that I will show you. And he doesn't promise the land to him there, but uh, just a few verses later, what's implicit in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see is made explicit uh, in Genesis 12, 7. That verse says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So why are these, uh, these patriarchal promises, which I have summed up as posterity, relationship, and land? Now, by the way, those are just kind of summaries of what God's promising to the patriarchs. Um, uh, and, and they're good summaries, I think, as long as we keep in mind that they are summaries. There's, uh, as we begin to read through the Bible more, we're going to find out that there's more to each one of these. Um, but these, uh, these, three, uh, these three promises, posterity, relationship, and land, uh, why are they so important for us as we continue to read on through Genesis, as we continue to read on through the Pentateuch? 
Well, the main reason that I think they're important is because they really set up the whole Pentateuch. Um, they set the stage, and they're what's responsible for driving the narrative of the Pentateuch along, uh, not only for the Pentateuch, but we're also going to see for the rest of the Old Testament, and in some respects, even for the rest of the whole Bible. The whole Bible, can, in some respects, could be said uh, to be about how God is at work fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So uh, how is that? Well, let's uh, look at uh, book of Genesis chapter 35 verses 11 through 12. What we're going to see is we're going to look at some spa uh, places within the Pentateuch where these patriarchal promises keep reoccurring. Okay, so it's not that God shows up in Genesis 12 and promises these things to Abraham. They, they keep reoccurring as we move, uh, move on through the Pentateuch. So let's look at uh, Genesis 35, 11 through 12. Uh, there we read, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Uh, he's talking to, uh, he's actually talking to Abraham's grandson at this point. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So we see uh, way after Genesis 12, we see uh, God appearing to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, uh, and he's making some of the same promises that he made earlier to Abraham, right? And so we see these promises are being passed along each generation through each generation, um, of the patriarchs. Uh, earlier, we're not going to look at that, but God shows up to Isaac, Abraham's son, that he was finally, um, that finally came to him and Sarah. Uh, God shows up to Isaac, and he makes some of those very same promises to Isaac. And so here we see him making these same promises uh, to Jacob. Well, once, that's fine. Once we get a, once we are moving through Genesis, you know, we might expect, oh yeah, these promises in Genesis chapter 12, or of course they're going to reoccur in the, in the same section of the Pentateuch, but well, what about when we get into the book of Exodus? Are, the, are these promises still going to be important? Are they going to keep reoccurring? Well, uh, well, what about once Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, what about once they're dead and passed on from the scene. Is that going to be kind of the end of the promises? Well, let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These verses say, these are the names of the sons of Israel. So Israel is just a, another name for Jacob, uh, just like Abraham. Uh, Jacob was renamed. Uh, he was renamed by God to Israel, who came to Egypt, uh, the sons with Jacob, uh, and each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishasar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gade, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled from them. And so right at the beginning of the book of, the book of Exodus, we see that... Um, Jacob and his 12 sons have come down, uh, have go, gone down to the land of Egypt, and uh, they have already multiplied into 70 people. So we started out with Abraham and his wife uh, when God initially made the promises to him. We see that already that one man and one wife has produced, uh, produced 70 uh, people. And then once we, see, uh, once we see that they went down to Egypt, we see that all of a sudden all these people, uh, all these patriarchs are now dead and they've left the scene. 
But interestingly, right at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that God is still uh, very interested in these uh, descendants of the patriarch. Uh, we're told in these verses that the people of Israel were, were fruitful and in, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So we, still, we see God is still being faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis uh, 12. Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. Okay, so what we see here is a, is a reference to the relationship promise that God made to Abraham, right? God said, uh, I'm going to bless you and to bless your offspring after you, indicating that there was going to be a special relationship what we see in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, is that this relationship is continuing to be significant for the patriarch's descendants, right? Uh, we actually see a specific reference to the patriarch in these verses um, and about how God is remembering his covenant that he made with the patriarchs. And then the, this is very interesting, the last word of that is just, and God knew, right? That's interesting, God just... And that verse just ends up just by saying God knew, as in God uh, knew this people so well that he just had an inward sense of their struggles in the nation of Egypt, that they were being uh, enslaved and oppressed and made to work for a tyrant and Pharaoh, right? And so uh, we see that God it hasn't forgotten about uh, the patriarchs and their descendants at this point, even though the patriarchs have left the scene, but he, he knew. He was very aware of what was going on with these guys. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, that verse says, And I have come down to deliver them. This is God speaking to Moses. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to, 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 do, uh, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and with honey, uh, to, place, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezerites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. So here we see uh, the last patri part of the patriarchal promise. We see a reference being made to it in the book of Exodus. God is going to take the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and he is going to take them to the land that he promised to give the, uh, Abraham uh, and Abraham's immediate offspring to give to their ultimate offspring, the nation of Israel, right? Uh, and so right at the very beginning of Genesis, we're only in Genesis chapter 3 at this point, and we've already seen a reference to the posterity of patriarchal promise. We've already seen a reference to the relationship promise, and we've already seen another relationship, uh, another promise to the land promise. And so even though we've moved on uh, from the patriarchs to their descendants, and even though we've moved on from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus, we're seeing that these patriarchal promises are still uh, very much uh, prominent in the narrative. They're, they're actually what's moving the narrative uh, forward as we go. So uh, what about once we get up beyond the book of uh, Exodus, uh, beyond that book, and get to the book of Leviticus? Well, let's look at uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 9. Uh, that verse says, And I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. And so in the book of uh, Leviticus in chapter 26, we see God uh, reaffirming his uh, promise to prosper the nation of Israel, to 
to make them a great and mighty and numerous nation. Let's look at uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, just a few verses later in verses 11 through 12. Those verses say, And I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Well, this is a reference to the relationship patriarchal promise, right? God is continuing to commit himself to the people of Israel uh, to have a relationship with them all the way into the book of Leviticus. Let's consider uh, a little bit earlier in the book of Leviticus. Let's look at Leviticus 14.34. That verse says, when you, came, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house, that sounds weird, doesn't it, in the land of your possession. So what's, what's going on here? Well, what we see in this verse is that Okay, the people of Israel haven't come into the promised land yet, but the book of Leviticus is all about preparing them to go in first and to have a relationship with God, and second, it's all about what the people of Israel are to do once they come into the promised land, right? Where are the people at when, uh, when we read the book of Leviticus? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, right? They're a transient people living in tents. But here in the book of Leviticus, we see uh, what they're supposed to do once they have a house. And that house has some kind of mold or mildew infection in it, right? And so the book of Leviticus is anticipating that this people is going to come into the promised land eventually, right? So reference to the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and has been driving the narrative forward from that point. Let's look at, uh, let's move on into the book of Numbers. Let's look at uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 10. Uh, this verse says, um, this is kind of an interesting uh, account, if you'll recall in the book of Numbers. Basically what's happened is the book of, uh, the people of Israel have left Mount Sinai and they're beginning to wander up to, to the promised land. Um, they eventually rebel and don't go into the promised land, but God's still going to remain faithful to his promise. Uh, and eventually the people began to, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, the people have continued to grow, and the people are starting to move back towards the promised land, and they encounter all these different kings that are in the land. And one of them in particular, I think it's the king of Moab, he, he hires this guy called Balaam, who's like a, uh, a, an ancient prophet or soothslayer, or somebody that's going to call down a bunch of if you wanted to call down curses on your neighbor, you would call this Balaam guy and say, hey, I'm going to give you some money and I want you to come shout some curses over this person so they, they'll have a lot of misfortune. Well, this, uh, this ancient king is seeing the people of Israel. They're starting to encroach upon his land and he's saying, Balaam, I want you to come curse these people. But what happens when Balaam actually shows up, shows up on the scene uh, he realizes that he's not able to utter curses against this people that God has blessed. And one of the things that he uh, says once he uh, goes to curse the people, and actually it's blessings that come out, one of the things that he says, we read in Genesis, uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? That should be very interesting to us as we're thinking about the patriarchal promises because what we're seeing here is that the nation of Israel is being compared to um, just the dust that you would find in the desert or on the ground. I mean, they're so numerous, you can't even begin to number these people. Let's look at uh, the book of Numbers in chapter 23, verses 20 through 21. These verses say, Behold, I received a command to bless. 
he has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. This is what I was referring to earlier. He has not beheld mis- he has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. So what we're seeing here is a reference to the relationship promise, right? The Lord, their God, is with them, and he is uh, among them. God, the God of heaven, has a relationship with this people that you're asking me to curse, and I can't do it because God has a relationship with them. The patriarchal promises continue to be significant in the book of Numbers. Let's look at uh, the book of Numbers, starting in chapter 10, verse 29. This has a couple of weird names that I'm going to attempt to pronounce in here. I I think I'll do all right, but uh, uh, that verse reads, And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. And so here we see Moses saying to his father-in-law, hey, we're going to start making our way to the promised land. This is what this is what us coming out of the land of Egypt has been all about. We're not just coming out from the land of Egypt. We are passing through Mount Sinai, establishing a covenant and a relationship with God, and then we are going to move towards this promised land that he promised our, uh, our ancestors all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Well, let's look at the book of Deuteronomy. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter uh, 1 verse 10. This verse says, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of the heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. So here we see a clear reference to the uh, posterity patriarchal promise, right? Uh, God, uh, Moses is looking at the people of Israel, and he says, God has blessed you numerically. And in fact, he does something very interesting here. He compares them to the stars of the heaven. Now, we didn't look at this. Remember, I told you that the patriarchal promises are way more prevalent in, the, in these books than I'm actually going to be able to discuss with you tonight. Uh, in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, God actually calls uh, to Abraham, that original patriarch, and says, Abraham, I want you to come out of your tent. And so Abraham comes out of his tent, and God says, Abraham, look, look up. And what Abraham sees in that ancient Near Eastern sky is all these thousands and thousands and thousands of stars up in the sky, right? And God says, Abraham, I want you to try and number those stars with the implication being, Abraham, there's no way that you can do that. There's no way you can number these stars. And then God says to him, Abraham, your offspring is going to be that numerous and more, right? Well, what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 10, is a reference to what God uh, did for Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and it's a reference to the posterity promise uh, that he had promised to the patriarchs. Let's look at the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. Uh, This verse says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to the people of his own, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are to this day. So here we see the nation of Israel referred to, uh, referred to as God's inheritance, right? And so this is a reference to the relationship promise. The people of Israel are God's own possession. Uh, he has a relationship with the people of Israel, uh, who are the descendants of the patriarch. And let's finally look at uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 8. This verse says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land, 
that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to give them, uh, the, give to them and to their offspring after them. So here we see a direct reference to the patriarchal land promise, right? God's, uh, God is recalling what he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then succeeded the promise to Isaac and to Jacob. And God's saying, guys, it's, it's time to go through and take this land that I promised them all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, right? So we see that the patriarchal promises aren't just over in Genesis chapter 12. They don't disappear from the scene. In fact, they're not over once we get to the book of Exodus and the patriarchs have fallen off the scene and have died and now we're dealing with their ancestors. Now they're still present there. And in fact, they're present in every single book of the Pentateuch in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, all of these books have numerous references to the patriarchal promises. And so they're really what's kind of driving the narrative of the Pentateuch forward uh, as you read through it. What are some, uh, maybe some other reasons that the patriarchal promises are important? Well, I don't really have the time that I wanted to to get into this tonight. At least I think I don't. I might have more time than I realize once we're done. But um, uh, two things that I wanted to mention to you uh, real, uh, real briefly. I wish I had more time to go into that is that I think the way that the author of Genesis uh, describes the patriarchal promises, he's envisioning what God is promising to Abraham as a, um, as a response to what happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? And so we read about Genesis chapter 3. That's where uh, God's creation begins to go when sin enters into his creation and everything goes wrong, right? And so what I think the author of uh, Genesis is doing is he's, presenting these promises that God made to Abraham, and he's saying, look, the end result of these promises is going to be a response, uh, something to fix what we see went wrong all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The end result is going to be a, uh, an undoing of the curses that we see in Genesis chapter 3. One reason I uh, think that is because if you look at the number of times the word blessing is used, uh, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I think it's 5, well, you actually see five curses in Genesis 1 through 11, which is all about, um, uh, all about sin coming into God's creation and taking over the world. And so there's a couple other interesting connections like that that, that we can note. Uh, one other thing that I want us to keep in mind before we move on from the patriarchal promises is that I think the Pentateuch uh, takes... Uh, a lot of care to present these promises as partially fulfilled and then also uh, partially not fulfilled, okay? And so obviously the posterity promise, once we get to the end of the Pentateuch, we see that the posterity promise is already in some respects fulfilled, right? The nation of Israel is this huge uh, nation that's going through these other nations on their way to the promised land and it doesn't seem like anything that can stop them, right? They're, they're already a large, important nation, but we read in Deuteronomy, I think it was 110 that we looked at, that Moses is actually anticipating that this nation is going to continue to grow, right? And so their growth isn't done yet, right? Uh, we also see this clearly uh, when we think about the land promise, right? Where are the people of Israel uh, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy? Are they in the promised land? No, they're, they're not into the promised land. In fact, they, they're right up on the border of the promised land, and they're, they're peering over the, the river Jordan at, at the land that God has promised them, and yet the Pentateuch concludes with the people of Israel left back on the other side. They haven't gone into the land yet, right? 
And the Pentateuch concludes right there. And we as modern readers are just like, what was that guy thinking? He's leaving out the, the climax of his story, the best part, right? Well, maybe he had a reason for doing that. Remember, one of the things that we uh, talked about earlier was who wrote the Pentateuch and when did he write it and why? Okay, so this author, we, uh, at least I think that whoever was responsible for the final form of the Pentateuch that we read in our Bibles, he was somebody that had already lived in the, in the promised land, right? And yet he's seeing the people of Israel live in rebellion all around him, right? And they're not the people that, uh, that they should be. He's not, they're not the people that God has called them to be, right? And so he's looking at the people of Israel, and he's even looking at the land that they're in, and he's thinking, I don't think this is everything that God had in mind when he promised to, uh, to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bring his descendants into a great land and to make them a great nation and to bless them. I think, I think there's something more than what I see around me at this point. And so we see that uh, the patriarchal promises in large measure are fulfilled in the Pentateuch. They're partially fulfilled, but we're also anticipating a, a future and greater fulfillment, right? that exists beyond what we see narrated in the independence suit. So let's, um, let's uh, shift gears and begin to look at uh, God's covenant with Israel. So um, first thing we need to, to discuss here when we're thinking about a covenant is, well, well, what is a covenant, okay? Well, a covenant is an agreement between two parties making a binding, official, and permanent relationship of faithful, loyal love obedience and trust not a business contract or a marketplace agreement i'm just pulling this uh, definition of a covenant straight from a book that uh, a guy named peter gentry wrote he's a professor at the seminary uh, that i go to and, uh, and that brian teaches at. Um, so what is a covenant well it's a agreement between two parties but notice uh, it's a little bit more than that isn't it right I mean, it's more than just like a typical contract or something like that. It, if you were to, if I were to go to a realtor and say, I, I, I'm ready to buy a house and I, I want to buy a house and I put a contract on a house, uh, that's a binding agreement, right? But the, it's not really a covenant, right? And what's the difference? Well, the interest is, uh, uh, the difference is that the two parties in the contract, me and then the person buying the house and then the person selling me the house, we have, we have different motives in mind uh, when we're making that contract, right? See, I want, I want a house for my family to live in, but the guy selling me the house, he's not interested in the house, he's interested in my money for the house, right? And so um, these two parties are, the two parties are interested in different things. The guy selling me the house he, he doesn't care about my family go moving into the house and just having this wonderful life as we live life together in the house. He, he doesn't care if the day after the contract gets signed, if a tornado comes and flattens his old house, right? That's not what a covenant is like. A covenant's very different in that both parties are agreeing and both parties are interested in achieving the same thing from this agreement, right? Um, it's, uh, it's much more of a, an emotion where both parties are tied to this agreement uh, emotionally. So uh, we're going to look at um, three things uh, when we're thinking about God's covenant with Israel and the Pentateuch. First thing we're going to look at is uh, how God established his covenant with the people of Israel. We're then going to look at God, Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant. And finally, we're going to look at the anticipation of a new covenant in the Pentateuch.
Let's begin with uh, how God established his covenant with the nation of Israel. Let's look at the book of Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to read a couple of verses. We're going to read 19 verses 3 through 5. These verses say, The Lord called to him uh, out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that's Israel, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. I think that's beautiful, by the way. And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all, among all peoples, for the whole earth is mine. So in these verses, we see that God is coming to the nation of Israel, and he's saying, all that bringing you out of uh, bondage, Egyptian bondage, that was great to get y'all out of bondage, but I did that for another purpose. I actually did it to bring you here to this mountain uh, in order to make my covenant with you. And uh, that covenant's actually a, a sign of the patriarchal promises that we were talking about earlier, right? They're a sign of, a, of the relationship promise that God promised to have with, uh, with Abraham's descendants. So we see uh, an anticipation uh, uh, an announcement that God is going to make a covenant with the people of Israel in Exodus 19. Let's look at uh, the book of Exodus chapter 24 verse 3. In this verse we read, Moses came and told the, Lord, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. So what's happened in between now and then? Well in Exodus chapter 19 we see an announcement of the covenant. And then it's starting in Exodus 20, we start to see something, uh, some what we might call or think of stipulations of the covenant, right? God is telling the people of Israel, okay, Israel, this is what you're going to do as you're part of the covenant that you're making with me. Uh, and then he goes on in Exodus 20 to give them something that we would know as the Ten Commandments, right? These are the ten primary stipulations that God is placing on to the, to the people of Israel to to, to follow as they're uh, in a covenant relationship with him. Once we move on beyond the Ten Commandments, we come to another uh, book. Uh, I think it's uh, Exodus 20. Um, I don't think I have it down here, but it's uh, whenever the Ten Commandments end in Exodus 20 all the way up to Exodus, the end of Exodus 23, uh, that section of Scripture is often referred to as the Book of the Covenant. Okay, so it's not quite as popular as the Ten Commandments, but nevertheless, this is a, another set of stipulations that God is giving to the people of Israel in order to follow, in order to live in a covenant relationship with him. And so this verse, Exodus uh, chapter 24, verse 3, says that Moses comes down and he tells the people of Israel all of these rules and these stipulations that are their part of the covenant, and in response... God is going to make the people of Israel his special covenant people. And what do the people of Israel say? They say, all of the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. A couple of verses later in Exodus 24, 7 through 8, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they say, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what, what's going on with this blood stuff? Well, that's actually the, the final signing and sealing of this covenant agreement between uh, God and the people of Israel. And Moses is 
made a sacrifice and he's taken some of that blood of the sacrifice and throwing it upon the people of Israel and saying, this is what's going to happen to you if you break this covenant uh, with our God who's living in a covenant relationship uh, with you. So we're going to look at, uh, we looked at the establishment of God's covenant. Now we're going to turn and begin to look at Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant. We're going to uh, go to the book of Exodus, chapter 32, and look at verses 1 through, uh, one through 4. Uh, these verses say, When the people of Israel saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, uh, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, uh, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so we see all already in uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 32, this covenant that God made with the people of Israel, it's not going very well, is it? I mean, it's even uh, reading the narrative as it stands right now, it, it just seems so sudden that all this, that this people who has just said all that the Lord has promised or said, we, we will do that. Uh, it seems like just seven chapters later or whatever it is that already they're starting to disobey uh, that covenant that they agreed to in the worst way possible, right? It's even more interesting if we think of this. Do you know how many words are uttered by the people of Israel in chapter tw from chapter 24 to uh, ex the beginning of Exodus 32? How many words do you think the people of Israel said? They don't say anything. You don't see one word from the people of Israel in that whole uh, expansive chapter. It's like the author is saying, in this chapter, they took in a breath and said, all that the Lord has uh, said we will do. And with their very next breath, the next words that come out of their mouth is, get up, Aaron. You need to make us some gods so that we can get on our way uh, uh, out of... Um, uh, out, of the, out of this Mount Sinai. We're, we're ready to move on, and we don't know what happened to this guy Moses. I think it's uh, very interesting. So God's, uh, Moses is, of course, up with God at this point, and God tells him, Moses, you better get down there because I'm about to wipe this people I've just made this covenant with off the face of the earth and start over with you. And uh, Moses pleads with God and said, God, just don't do that. Just let, let me talk to him real quick. And so Moses goes running down the mountain, and uh, uh, first thing he sees is uh, his brother Aaron. And what we, we read about what he says to Aaron in Exodus 32, 21 through 24. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, not, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. That part's true. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt... We do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who, has, who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That, that part's not true, by the way. But uh, I, I think it's so very interesting to see the response Aaron has uh, when he is confronted with his role in the sins of Israel. 
what does he do? Well, he blame shifts, doesn't he? He said, Moses, it, it wasn't me, it was this people. You know how evil and obstinate they are and how bent they are in rebellion? In fact, he does the very same thing that we talked about earlier, right? That, that Adam did in the garden. He said, God, it wasn't my fault. It, it, was, it was the woman. She, she uh, gave me the fruit. It's not my fault, God. They do the same thing, right? And we see what happens. What's going on with this? Uh, well, I, they just gave me the, see, Moses, it's not my fault. They just gave me this gold and I threw it into the fire and out popped this calf, right? And you're just like, what in the world are you smoking, Aaron? You know that that's not true, and you know nobody's going to believe that, right? And I mean, I'm telling you, it's just this weird. Like, there's no kind of ancient Near Eastern uh, fact that I can give you to the, that makes what Aaron's saying here make sense, right? It just doesn't make any sense. There's, there's nothing going on in Hebrew, the language that this was written in, that you're saying, aha, well, that, that finally makes sense now. It, it doesn't make any sense. And that's the point, right? You see what Aaron is saying when he says that he just threw it into the fire and out popped this calf. He's saying, look, we thought, I mean, if God wasn't behind this, there's no way that that would have happened, right? And it's just what Adam did, isn't it? All the way back in the garden. We see Adam says, well, God, it, it wasn't me. It was the woman who, by the way, you gave me God, right? She's the one that led me to sin, right? And so... Uh, we see just as Adam blames Eve and blames God, we see Aaron blaming uh, the people of Israel and actually, I think, blaming God for his role and what happens there, right? And it's very interesting because what part of the importance of covenant uh, in the Old Testament and this covenant that God is forming with the nation of Israel is that in some sense it's supposed to be a, a restoration of something of what was lost uh, in the Garden of Eden, right? God is going to uh, live among this people of Israel, and he's going to live in this special place with them, and there's going to be a, uh, last week I told you that there's going to be all this uh, symbol, things symbolizing uh, the Garden of Eden in the tabernacle, right? And so this, um, this covenant that God is making with the people of Israel is supposed to be like a, something of a recovery of that, right? But what do we see? Just like what happened in the garden, we see that uh, as soon as things get get started and before they even get rolling good sin enters into the picture it just won't go away really so um we've seen uh, israel's unfaithfulness to god's covenant we see that we saw the establishment of god's covenant israel's unfaithfulness to that covenant now we're going to look at the anticipation of a new covenant let's turn to the book of deuteronomy and look at chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 this is known as the shema uh, for ancient, for, for Hebrews, and they would read this um, on a daily basis. Uh, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So what is God commanding the, for the people of Israel to do here? He's commanding them to have the, his word, his commandments written on their heart. But the problem is, is that we've seen time after time after time after time as we're reading through the Pentateuch that the people of Israel just don't have this capacity in them. They can't obey God's law out of their hearts because their heart, the law isn't written on their hearts. Let's look at uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 39. This verse says, And it shall be a tassel for you to look at, and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them 
not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. And so here we see this uh, thing uh, uh, brought up for the nation of Israel. They're supposed to hang this tassel down to help them remember to keep the law of God. And the reason is because uh, if they don't have some kind of visible reminder, they're going to uh, fall into, into, sin, uh, into sin and not following the covenant with God, right? And the reason, according to this verse, is because the law isn't written on the people's hearts. They don't have the heart to do what Deuteronomy 6 uh, asks them to do. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And so we hear, uh, we see here that uh, God is yearning for the people of Israel to have a heart to keep his commandments, with the implication being that the people of Israel don't have this heart in themselves at this point in the Pentateuch. They don't have the heart to be obedient uh, to the covenant that they have made with God. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because, all of, the abundant, because of the abundance of all things. So here again, we see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy this claim that Israel doesn't have the heart to uh, follow after God in covenant. Um, so finally we see, uh, but we begin to see a turn in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 2. So uh, after the people of Israel, this is actually referring to when the people of Israel, after they've continued to sin and sin and sin and fallen deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, um, after uh, all that, the Lord's eventually going to take them out of the land that he has promised to them and exile them out of the land. And then we pick up with these verse, and this says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I commanded you today with all your heart, and with all your soul. So we see in these verses in the book of Deuteronomy that although the people don't currently have a heart to follow God in obedience, the author of the Pentateuch and Moses himself is looking forward to a time when God is going to give the people of Israel that heart. Let's look a couple verses later in the book of Deuteronomy uh, 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. So the best verse is saying that God's eventually going to give the people of Israel a heart that they can use to follow after what he required them to do uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look at Deuteronomy 30 verse 10. When you Obey the vo voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we see that the, the Pentateuch uh, kind of begins to conclude with this anticipation that even though things are already aren't going well with the nation of Israel, they're already a, a group that has rebelled time and time again uh, against the covenant that they have made with God, we see that the Pentateuch is concluding with this anticipation that one day, after they've been exiled out of the land, one day God is going to bring them back and he is going to put in them, uh, within them a, a heart that is going to be able to 
follow after God and to keep God's covenant with them. As Christians, we would call this the new covenant, and we think that this new covenant is actually what happens, uh, was inaugurated when Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave. At that point, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is able to come within God's people and give us a new heart to begin to yearn to follow after God. So in the Pentateuch, the uh, the covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel, we've seen it. Uh, we've seen it established. We've seen Israel's rebellion against it, and we've seen a um, we've seen a anticipation of a new covenant that wouldn't be written on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. I wanted to talk to you guys about the uh, the Pentateuch's royal anticipation tonight. Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, start to close it down here. We're not going to get to that. Um, we might get to it in some of the coming weeks. Uh, it's going to become an increasingly important theme. But just uh, just in way of referencing that, we, when we think of kings in the Bible, we usually start to think of the books of Samuel that we're studying on Sunday morning and then the books of kings uh, after that when, when we're thinking about Israel's kingship. But one thing that we might not realize is that uh, kings start appearing. The anticipation of a royal kingship in the house of Israel starts all the way back with uh, Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 15, I think it is, where God, part of his patriarchal promises is he's promising, guys, one day there's going to be kings that are coming from you. And we can follow that theme all the way through the rest of the Pentateuch and see that um, this uh, anticipation of a royal dynasty coming from the nation of Israel just continues to grow and grow and grow uh, and is idealized to the point that you actually realize well, the actual royal dynasty uh, in, uh, that actually emerges in Israel uh, unfortunately falls far short of this uh, picture that we see to begin uh, to develop in the, in the Pentateuch. So I'm, I'm going to close it down there. Uh, next week, we're going to begin looking at the books of Joshua and Judges. So we're done with the Pentateuch, but I can promise you we're not done with these theological themes that we're seeing in the Pentateuch. We're going to see them uh, crop up time and time again as we continue to uh, march our way through the Old Testament. So next week, the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one of my favorites in the whole Old Testament. So uh, I'm just going to close this with a word of prayer. Father, 